You're listening to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier's premier public policy podcast. My name is Ayman Lau, and I'm the communications officer with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Today, Robert Falconer joins me on the podcast to discuss immigrant doctors in Canada. Robert Falconer is a research associate at the School of Public Policy and a leading expert on immigration, refugee, and border policy. As Canada tries to contain the COVID-19 pandemic, we may be overlooking an incredibly valuable resource, immigrant doctors. More than 12,000 people have signed a petition to allow international medical graduates in Canada to join frontline workers in the fight against COVID-19. However, physicians who immigrate to Canada face a burdensome and challenging process to become accredited, leading to brain waste. As a result, many capable physicians are not able to practice, especially when they could be helping us in situations like the COVID-19 pandemic. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about what I consider to be a pretty important issue. First, just tell us a bit more about yourself and your work. Yeah, thank you for having me on, Ivan. So I'm a research associate with the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. I've been working there for a few years now, uh, with my focus being immigration and refugee policy. This particular piece of work was actually sort of uh, actually on the back burner for a long time. So for the past year or so, I've been working a lot on issues related to asylum, border security, topics like that. But in the background, we had this, this really nice data set that we created with a local nonprofit agency here in Calgary, Calgary Catholic Immigration Society. And uh, I started looking at the different occupations of immigrants in Calgary, was surprised by the n- large number of immigrant physicians and other healthcare providers, started slowly developing this one-page piece, and uh, that became all the more relevant as months went by. So this is, uh, I started writing it back in January, uh, December. As we passed into February and then March, this became very obvious to me that it was a very important topic to address in light of the pandemic, COVID-19. So that's sort of how this piece got spawned off. And then, of course, now it's, it's turned into something a little bit bigger. We've looked at Canadian-wide data and province-specific data. But yeah, that's sort of how this all came about. Just, again, a little piece that was on the back burner and then became increasingly relevant to look at how are I saw hard to refer to people as resources, but how to really, I mean, how are we utilizing this, this particular demographic of recently arrived immigrants within our healthcare system? So how many landed immigrants in Canada are physicians that have practiced and or received their medical training in other countries? So according to the 2016 census, which is uh, the last time we had a, a full scope of the entire labor market field in this area, about 28% of the total number of physicians in Canada are immigrants. That's about 28,000 people here in Canada are are immigrant physicians. Since that time, about another 3,500 have immigrated to Canada. And it's actually a fairly similar number when you look at other healthcare professions as well. If you look at the the total healthcare system here in Canada, about 24% of our healthcare system is made up of immigrants. That includes nurses, pharmacists, dentists, etc. That 24% is about 300,000 people or so. So what is the current accreditation process for immigrant doctors? How does it work? How long does it take to be able to practice on average? And what are the current costs to get accredited? So first thing that should be said is that when immigrant healthcare professionals arrive in Canada, and specifically physicians, um, they have to go through a licensing process. Other immigrants who arrive here often work in in unlicensed professions. Um, Let's say you were an immigrant Let's say I'm trying to think of uh, all my first thoughts were teacher and lawyer, but those are both licensed professions as well. Um, but let's say you're an immigrant, let's say you're a researcher like myself. You were a researcher and you wouldn't need a license to do that. So you can start working right away. For an immigrant physician, uh, once they move to Canada, they have to go through a process where and they, they take several exams. They have to take at least two qualifying exams. 
then they have to register with the physiciansapply.ca. Uh, they have to submit their credentials from their countries of origin, showing that they have been educated as doctors. Then the big, uh, oh, they also have to do a language assessment. Sorry, that's a big important step that I missed. They have to do an academic English or French test. And, and I'll just iterate right here that most immigrants, especially those in, immigrating under the economic class, will have already written a language test as part of their immigration process moved into Canada. Once they do that, this is the big hinge point where a lot of immigrants get stuck in the system. Canada, the Canadian provinces generally uh, require uh, at least two years residency in order to, to work in Canada as an immigrant physician or any, any type of sort of physician. And many countries don't actually have the same two-year residency requirement. So even though a doctor may have been working in this field for quite a number of years, they don't have that two-year residency, which is considered sort of a, a postgraduate education they have to find a residency within Canada, meaning they have to get one of the coveted residency spots in order to, to get the training they need to become fully licensed here. If they happen for whatever reason to have that residency already, because maybe they're from one, uh, a list of a few specific countries, they can then do what's called a practice ready assessment, which is really sort of a, a short assessment of their, their ability to practice in Canada. So sort of reiterate there, again, there's several tests they have to do. They have to submit their credentials, do language tests, if they have two years residency already, they can just do a short-term assessment. If they do not have these two-year residencies from another country, they'll have to gain a residency spot in Canada. There's very, very, very few spots for internationally trained graduates in medicine. Total time it takes for them to do this is about three to five years if they can get their foot in the door. But that's on a range of about one to 10 years. So again, you can have some people who get accredited really, really fast, so about one year. Um, but then again, you have some people who do get their foot in the door, but it'll take them 10 years to finally get fully through that door. Uh, as a result, um, info we have from stats can indicates about only about 55% of internationally trained doctors actually end up practicing as doctors in Canada. And that's compared to about 90% of those born in Canada who are trained medical physicians end up practicing. But when you look at the whole lump uh, of money that has to go towards accreditation, I, I, the reason I use that word is that we're not just looking at fees, but we're looking, of course, the books and the other resources needed to study for the test, foregone income, et cetera. You're looking at about $14,000 in the low end to approximately $28,000 in the higher end. And uh, sort of some studies have come out showing that this is about 42% of an immigrant's annual income during the reaccreditation process. So just a little under half of an immigrant's income will go towards just recertification during their first few years in Canada. Do physicians from different countries face the same barriers to accreditation? For example, does a physician from, let's say, Hong Kong or Australia face the same barriers as a physician from India? The barriers are actually quite different. If you're a U.S. immigrant coming to Canada, then it's practically the same process. We kind of treat U.S. immigrant physicians or American-trained immigrant physicians sort of the same we do Canadian graduates. Uh, other immigrants from the Anglosphere, sort of UK. Ireland, Australia, et cetera, they also don't have to, to go through this whole, they, they don't have to go through the examination process necessarily. They do have to get their, their credentials assessed and they do have, might have to meet the residency requirements, but there is a, a, a consideration of the fact that they were educated in an English speaking country. And I, I should say there's plenty of other English speaking countries beyond just those numbers that I, I've mentioned, but there's also consideration for, for again, these, these Anglosphere countries. Again, I'm, I'm thinking Australia, Ireland, Hong Kong, New Zealand, et cetera, uh, where they don't have to go through the same rigorous examination process. Are there any other similar medical professions that face these challenges in becoming accredited in Canada, for example, nurses? 
nurses certainly do have to go through this, a similar process of getting their their education recertified, meaning that they have to get it accredited or recognized. It, it's not as rigorous as the physician process, but it certainly can be just it can, it can certainly be very honest. The other one I'm thinking of right now is also lab technologists, and of course, this is very relevant in in the fight against COVID-19 because a huge part of our, our transition strategy of uh, being able to sort of shift out of this physical distancing, self-isolation phase to a, kind of a, a quasi-normal state relies a lot on testing and tracking positive cases of COVID-19. Laboratory technologists often have a difficulty getting their foot in the door if they're internationally trained because a lot of the colleges regulating those professions here in Canada also mostly recognize the education done through the two-year diploma programs here in Canada. So yeah, you're, you're totally right in bringing up that point. Nurses and lab technologists and other healthcare-related professionals also face a pretty onerous process and a pretty expensive process, not quite the same level as physicians, but again, it, it's a matter of also there's a considerable amount of time and money that gets spent in, in making sure that they're capable of practicing within, within a Canadian setting. Are there any alternative ways that immigrant doctors can become accredited to practice in Canada without going through these regulatory bodies? Off the top of my head, I know a few people, for example, who have applied to go back to medical school in Canada in order to practice despite being trained abroad. Yeah, so it's quite common for, for immigrant physicians to, um, to either go back to school to, to get their training recognized here in Canada. And, and often that's actually a common complaint when you look at qualitative studies on this. My work is mostly quantitative, but if you look at qualitative research on the recertification process, you'll oftentimes hear stories of physicians who are essentially having to redo medical school. And we'll talk about how they already, their, their test scores and, and their personal experiences reflect the fact they already know a lot of this stuff. Some provinces, Alberta is one of them, have sort of a, a healthcare assistant model. We shouldn't necessarily confuse that with a physician assistant specific title here, where immigrants who might not be fully recognized, but may have completed some of the steps, may be able to work in a limited setting within hospital settings under the supervision of a, of a doctor. That might be where they do sort of very, very basic tasks like taking patient histories, filling out charts, etc. So to put it succinctly, um, yes, a lot of them will actually do their education all over again, or they might go for a, what we might consider a lower tier within the, the healthcare professional. I don't use the word lower tier to sort of pejoratively with reference to, to work, the work nurses and technologists and other healthcare professionals do, more just that when we think of the amount of training that has to go into what a doctor does, we might see people trained as doctors choosing a well less paid position and, and one that doesn't require as, as much eligibility requirements. What's the rationale behind this accreditation process? So the big one is public health. There's always this this concern. I think it's a reasonable concern to have whether or not a, an immigrant or anybody else really who's providing patient care can, can provide it to the same level of quality as Canadian born or Canadian trained physicians. And when I say reasonable, I, I don't ask the, the, the barriers placed there are reasonable. I mean that that the rationale of actually wanting to ensure quality of care is a reasonable rationale for having these barriers. Now, I will say is that one thing that I think when you, all, when you ever look at papers or other research on occupational licensing and, and the reason why we have it, the big question is, is, do the barriers that we have set up actually ensure quality of care? I think it's one thing to say that if we, if there was, for whatever reason, if there was proof that there was an ina- inadequate level of care from immigrant physicians, there would be a reasonable process to make sure that we could we could verify those who can provide good patient care and those who cannot. The second question we have to ask is, is the licensing model that we currently have the best way to ensure that? And, and I think on both those counts, 
there, there's reason to question the current status quo. One, there's been plenty of empirical studies that have shown uh, with large, pretty large number of observations that the level of care provided by immigrant trained or internationally trained or immigrant physicians is roughly equal to the level of patient care provided by Canadian-born physicians or American-born physicians. The other thing to consider is, again, do, is the current model that we have for making sure we, quote-unquote, like weed out those who don't provide high levels of care, is that actually done through best of the current model? And I think there's reasons to indicate what, that that's not the case. So what are some of the reforms you would recommend to this current model? I think in this light, it's useful to consider what's being done around the world right now. So in response to COVID-19, a number of countries have chosen to, to reassess how they license immigrant healthcare professionals. And when I say countries, I should also say that number of healthcare uh, bodies within those countries, so professional boards and colleges, for example. There's, this exists in, on a bit of a spectrum. So on the one end of the spectrum, you have sort of a get them in the door type reforms. This is the two examples of this are New Jersey and New York, um, where the governors of both states, Governor Cuomo, for example, in New York, they've issued directives allowing uh, immigrant healthcare providers to provide patient care without a license with very minimal requirements. So in the case of New York, it's to just have one year of postgraduate training. In the state of New Jersey, as, as long as you're licensed in another country, you can be licensed or you can provide, provide patient care within the United States. So that's on the one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, you have the Irish Medical Council. So again, I think this is a very reasonable reform. This would be, this would be a bare minimum reform I think I would be interested in is they have waived the registration fees for immigrants, meaning that immigrant physicians who want to practice in Ireland could potentially register and recertify without cost to them personally. The other thing they've done is they've hired them to work in, again, these lower tier professions, in this case, healthcare aides, while they're waiting for recertification. And they've also promised to expedite that recertification. And what I mean by expedite is sort of uh, review them in a timelier manner. So that's on the other end of the spectrum. I, the model I actually quite am quite intrigued by is a model first piloted in France a few weeks ago. Um, and it's actually now been a similar or somewhat similar model has been actually adopted here in Canada in, in both British Columbia and Ontario. This is what I call the associate physician model. What this allows for is that when, a, when an immigrant physician who's been trained and has worked in another country wants to practice in Canada, especially in relation to public health emergency, they're able to get what's sort of a restricted license and they gain a title that's something similar to an associate physician title. What this means is that they can provide the same care that other doctors provide, but under the supervision of a fully licensed doctor within Canada. I, I think that's quite intriguing because I think it also can, you can then potentially, I could see a scenario where you fully end up fully licensing that associate physician, let's say with the approval of a supervising physician. I think that's, again, we'll, we'll see how that bears out, but that's one I'm most intrigued by is this associate model. But again, that exists on a range of reforms. Again, there's this get them in the door type model where, by the way, if, if worse came to worse here in Canada, most provincial healthcare uh, authorities do actually have the powers to break that glass and let that happen. Here in Alberta, under the Government Organization Act, the health minister during a public health emergency can allow almost anybody he wants to, to provide patient care. I don't think he would do that, but you could see a scenario where if it got serious enough here in Alberta, the health minister could authorize internationally trained physicians to provide patient care without a license. And again, that's on one end of the spectrum. On the other end of the spectrum, there's consideration of just the fee structure and, and the timeliness of, of registration. So if we do allow for a more timelier and more accessible accreditation system, what do you think are the implications for the labor market more broadly? 
I think we could probably see a significant number of, of physicians get approved here in Canada quite quickly. Roughly per year, we graduate about 2,900 physicians from our own schools. And when you look at the number of immigrants who, who move to Canada here every year who are physicians, that's we'd be sort of almost graduating another third of our, of our medical school graduates. So about 1,000 immigrant physicians per year on top of the 3,000 or so that we graduate from our, our schools. So we could pretty rapidly increase the number of immigrant healthcare professionals. And I'll just say that this is something that Sweden and Norway do. They, they actually have legislated recertification timelines, meaning that if you, once you start to recertify, you have to get, doesn't mean you'll get a blanket approved, but you'll have your answer within a fairly short period. I believe in Sweden, it's about 60 days within, sorry, within Norway, it's about 60 days. Within Sweden, it's about 120 to 150 days. You will have your answer. So we could significantly increase the number of doctors. And, and by the way, that's relevant because Canada is actually on the lower end of the OECD spectrum of doctors per one per, per population. For reference, Canada has about 2.8 doctors per 1,000 Canadians. Again, that kind of puts us, there are only about seven other countries below us in that, in that list. Austria, by way of contrast, that's at the top of the list. They're at 5.2. And the average is, is roughly about 3.5, give or take. So we could, we could rapidly boost the number of physicians per Canadians here within, uh, within the country. That's one implication of a faster licensing process. I think there could also be, you know, and some aspect here where we consider either the fee structure or the timeliness with reference to those who agree to go serve in rural locations. I know rural healthcare has always been a, an issue for the past number of years. We might be able to increase the number of rural physicians under a reform model. There's a number of implications that come with this. I know here in Calgary alone, the one that we looked at with our piece was that if we just licensed the immigrants from, from 2018, we'd be looking at boosting the number of uh, immigrants, or sorry, the number of physicians per Calgarian by about 15% or so. One of the concerns is that Canada has one of the most expensive healthcare systems. And while this is incredibly hard to predict, I'm curious, what are your thoughts on long-term costs of allowing more physicians to practice within Canada? Well, there's, uh, there's a number here. And again, we're doing a little bit of crystal ball gazing here. Of course, you could see a significant spike in healthcare-related costs with physicians added. There is a public benefit to the coffers when we do have a healthy population with adequate access to healthcare, so there might be some cost savings there as well. I'm always hesitant to necessarily make a financial argument against faster recertification. If the argument is that healthcare is too expensive, we should be looking at, at ways to reduce the cost, not necessarily reduce the number of providers. I, I'm not sure if reducing the number of, he of healthcare providers is necessarily the best way to reduce cost. There's been a, been a lot of work recently on looking at how do we pay physicians. Do we do it right now? Most of Canada is operating under a fee-for-service model. We could consider something like a capitation model or some other mixed method of payment for healthcare providers. To be frank, yeah, you, you could see a healthcare cost rise the more physicians we allow to practice here in Canada. Again, with, there would be some public benefit in, in a healthier population potentially. But I, I, I don't think necessarily we should make a financial argument against recertification in terms of public finances. I think we should really be look at the public finance argument in and of itself as a, as a separate uh, issue from re the recertification one. I would also argue that on an individual level, immigrant physicians are bearing the brunt of these enormous economic costs to become accredited to practice in Canada. And a more timelier and accessible system may allow for broader participation among immigrants in the labor market, resulting in savings in public finance more broadly in Canada. 
Absolutely. There, and by the way, that's actually brings up a really good point. One thing I didn't mention in my earlier reforms is that I think there may be not, maybe some need to look at fee waivers for different immigration categories. The, the example um, that always comes to mind for me is that there's one colleague of mine who works as a refugee lawyer. He recently helped one of his clients get asylum in Canada, who was a cardiovascular surgeon in, in Colombia. They're currently driving Uber here in Canada. Um, so even if they could pass tests, the likelihood that they'll be able to meet the necessary fees to recertify is very small. So we might consider, let's say, a, a fee waiver for people who come let's say, to Canada as refugees that might be one consideration, or it might base it off your taxes over the, from the last few years. I think those are all very good points. And like you said, there, there's this, a greater economic argument that if we can help get people in the door, we reduce um, either the distance or the lack of availability, getting a doctor, and we could see savings there. I'll also just say here is that part of the reason why we might have as, as much trouble as we do changing the fee structure is, uh, is the number of doctors. Within, you look at public choice theory on this, sometimes when you, have a, when you limit the number of, of providers, you increase the power of those, of those fewer providers. So who knows, maybe by adding a, a, a more robust healthcare system when you have more immigrant healthcare providers, you could potentially look at working and negotiating with them within the context of the colleges, of course, for a change in how we pay physicians here in Canada. So on a provincial level, what would your policy recommendations be on this issue? Uh, it's such a tricky one. Um, the two things that, that really make Ontario and BC distinct is that a lot of these uh, new, again, these associate physician models have been adopted within the context of the provincial colleges. The colleges are, are the decision makers here in this area. So the easiest way for this to change here in Alberta would be for the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta to make positive steps, at least positive, in my view, steps towards considering the fees involved with recertification or, or and the, the process as well. One very simple one I would also get rid of would be the residency requirement here in Alberta. And what, sorry, I should be careful when I say residency because I'm not necessarily saying residency in terms of, of the practice assessments, but residency is in, uh, when you move to Alberta as outside the province, you actually have to reside here for almost half a year before you can even apply for a residency position within the province. I think, I'm not sure what again the big question is is there a public health justification for that for that requirement i would be skeptical that spending several weeks or months here in, in alberta would make you a more capable or less capable physician if you're not even working as one in the first place so that'd be one that that would recommend at the college levels right away as for the provincial health ministers um i think again they, they'll have a quite a bit of authority to work with lobby and negotiate with the colleges um i think there's something they could certainly advocate and take champion Unless we think of championing doesn't matter, I'll just point out that this is what's happening in the UK right now. When the health secretary in the UK has agreed to champion this within the colleges and the and the certification boards in the United Kingdom, so I think that definitely matters. I think that's one thing the health ministers should really consider. And again, they do have this break glass option where if things got serious enough, they could authorize immigrant physicians to provide patient care. And what's interesting with this is that a lot of it's not even about bringing in more immigrant physicians. It's really about bringing them into the healthcare system in the sense that they, they already are actually practicing. They're already living within the country. They uh, just can't simply practice yet. Health ministers could certainly do that. Either, again, lobby the, the different colleges or they could, again, have this break glass scenario uh, where they, they just authorize immigrant physicians. I, I think the, the first one will probably reap more long-term benefits. Is there any course of action on a federal level that the Minister of Health could take? It's a bit trickier because, you know, there's this whole issue of that, that healthcare is generally provincial jurisdiction, but there are some things the federal government could do here. One is convene a minister's council on the issue. They might not be able to action that in the short term due to the pandemic, 
but certainly longer term call the minister's council on the issue and come to some sort of pan-Canadian agreement to allow immigrant physicians easier access to the healthcare system. They could leverage the two national colleges and also the National Medical Council. These are the Medical Council of Canada, the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada, sorry, the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada and the College of Family Doctors of Canada or College of Family Physicians of Canada. Those three bodies have high level of influence among the provincial bodies and be able to sort of negotiate with them would definitely be done, much better done at the federal level than at the individual provincial level. Third thing they could do, and this actually speaks to a larger issue, which would certainly help immigrant physicians, but indeed help really all physicians in Canada to increase their labor, labor mobility, is one is to sort of reduce the barriers to interprovincial licensing. This means that basically right now a, a doctor in, in Ontario can't necessarily go practice in neighboring Manitoba. Two options I've seen for addressing this, one is to create sort of a, a national regulatory board. And there is some precedent for this. The 2018 Supreme Court ruling on securities it basically established that um, while securities are in the hands of, of the provinces, the federal government could potentially create an overarching regulatory board with voluntary participation of the provinces, basically meaning that provinces agree to sort of harmonize their security policies and sort of be governed by this regulatory board. So you could see something like that happen within the healthcare system, where basically provinces agree to harmonize their licensing requirements, and then agree to be regulated at the national level uh, with regards to this. Um, and that would help both Canadian-born and immigrant physicians practice within Canada. There's also what's called the Interprovincial Passport, with that, which exists under provisions of the Canada Free Trade Agreement, which basically means that immigrants and other healthcare professionals seeking to jump from one province to the other, they would still have to pay their the necessary fees and get the necessary insurance, but they would, wouldn't have to necessarily go through the whole recertification process. So I think there's much, in general, there's much better done at the, the provincial level, but there is room here for the federal government to make strides as well. As we fight to contain the COVID-19 pandemic, we've seen more immigrant doctors become vocal in wanting to join the front lines in order to help. And I'm wondering if you have any personal anecdotes or similar stories that you could share with us about this. Yeah, so I'll, I'll share one. There was one doctor that I, I was talking with conversing over in Edmonton, originally from India, um, and quite widely practiced around, around the whole world. They had practiced in Japan. They had practiced in their home country of India. They had practiced in several countries in Europe. And uh, most recently, they had done a stint with Médecins Sans Frontières, uh, Dark Without Borders. And it, I probably butchered that French pronunciation. <laughs> uh, but they recently did a, a, a stint with MSF in, in South Sudan, where they were practicing as an anesthesiologist. And her comment was, you know, I've worked as an anesthesiologist, I've helped with dengue fever, with cholera, with other localized epidemics in those areas. I've worked with limited supplies and you kind of work under sometimes crisis scenarios, especially when there's a lot of violence in these areas. You could imagine that especially refugee and immigrant physicians might be better informed and, and better prepared to work under crisis conditions with shortages in these scenarios. And and unfortunately, again, her, her comment was, she's like, I simply am having a heck of a time getting recertified here in Canada. So unfortunately, she's not able to get practicing yet. Again, there's this massive financial barrier. There's also this very lengthy process uh, for recertification. And so unfortunately, she cannot join the fight against COVID-19. And then, of course, there's that previous example I shared of the Colombian cardiovascular surgeon who, you know, again, you're not going to be able to meet those fees driving Uber. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Robert. It was a really fascinating talk. Thank you for having me, Iman.